Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily. I am your host, Alex Andreu. Why do we have the slowest growth in the G7, Jeremy Hunt was asked. We are the only G7 economy to still be smaller than before the pandemic. That's not true, Hunt responded. We actually have the highest growth in the G7 this year. If you torture data enough, one of my economics professors used to say, it will confess whatever you want it to. My guest today is a statistician at the House of Commons Library advising MPs of all parties. Her specialisms are migration and justice, and she has just published the wonderfully surprising book, Bad Data, How Governments, Politicians and the Rest of Us Get Misled by Numbers. Welcome to the bunker, Georgina Sturge. Hi, Alex. Thanks for having me. Georgina Why did you write the book? In the book, you are what I would call an ecumenical abuser. (laughs) You pick out instances of politicians of all stripes using bad data or misusing good data. But there must have been maybe not an incident, but at least a period that made you go, right, I need to do this. Yes. Well, so as you mentioned, my day job is working at the House of Commons Library as a statistician. And so that job involves retrieving statistics for MPs and their staff. And so I work for all of the MPs, all political parties. I've got my specialisms, but I've also worked on a whole range of topics. And working in that job, I've been surprised sometimes by the absence of good data on topics which are really important and Mm. which members ask about really often or just the the quality of some of the main important government data sets not being what I would have expected it to be and I think we all have this tendency to view numbers as being a, a very solid form of evidence yes and also to view them as in some way kind of impartial or politically neutral maybe mm, in mm. as if numbers speak for themselves almost But what I realized through doing this job and through working as a statistician and a researcher in general is that numbers, numerical data isn't necessarily more reliable or solid or impartial than any other form of evidence because there is a human element in it. And that's that's something that inspired me to write this book because, yeah, I think we all kind of have a bit of an instinctive distrust maybe of statistics. But at the same time, we don't really know where to start in terms of scrutinizing them yes, properly. I, so what I wanted to do with the book was show where do, where do these numbers actually come from? How are they collected? And who decides what to collect and how to count things? Yes, I, I, I've heard a, a, a friend who works in statistics for local authorities once say to me that we are occasionally drowning in data but starved of insight which I think is quite a good way of describing having the numbers, but not the story behind them, if that makes sense. You point out that a sort of epistemological approach to policy is a relatively new thing, actually. And that was that was one of the things that really made me think in the book, that it's a relatively new invention not to devise policy by opinion instinct anecdote or hunch. Is there any evidence, though, that this new approach results in better policy? Yeah, so as you say, this whole idea of what some people might call 
evidence-based policymaking is quite a new one. But um, their governments, well, governments and sort of before the days of governments, rulers have collected data on on populations for a very long time. There mm. were, of course, censuses already thousands of years ago. But yeah, this era of modern data collection and data really being this kind of backbone of government policymaking is a pretty new thing. And by new, I mean sort of a couple of decades, three or four decades, perhaps, depending on what you're looking at in particular. Mm -hmm. But whether it's led to decisions being sort of better or yeah, the outcomes of, of policy decisions being better, it's really hard to say, I suppose. Isn't the, it? <laughs> yeah, the good thing, I mean, obviously, from a kind of principle perspective, it is better that we have decisions being based on what would purport to be hard evidence. So for there to be this kind of accountability trail, mm. it's good that the people we elect to make decisions and the people who work in government departments are basing them on something which appears to be yeah, em empirical objective in some way, rather than just a hunch, an ideology. Mm. Having this kind of backup gives us a sense of that decision maybe being more informed, more democratic. However, this data isn't necessarily just good in its own right. Just having counted or measured something it doesn't guarantee that you've counted or measured it in the right way. You may mm. have counted or measured it in a way that kind of defines a problem, a policy problem, in the terms that you've decided to to use. Yeah, and yeah. You, you may have missed something else about the problem or some adjacent problem and just not have collected data on that. So, yeah, it's it's, I would say preferable that we we have these systems for for collecting data and using it in government but at the end of the day that's it's, it's still not perfect I'll come to the specifics of assumptions and definitions and all of that but I'm, I'm just interested in the more general idea that people have genuinely changed the way they make policy and I'm sure some have as opposed to people still operating on hunch and anecdote and instinct and then looking for the, the data to justify it sort of retrospectively. And because you deal with so many politicians, without asking you to name names, I'm wondering about the mix. You know, the people who come to you, when do you get the sense that they come with a genuinely open mind to look at the evidence in a particular area and how often you, do you get the sense that they come to you looking for support for a, an existing position as it were i'd say probably if we're just if we're talking about governments politicians and and all sorts of people i think usually there will be a kind of preformed opinion as to what's the, what's the case what mm. um, people expect the data to say and so, yes, politicians are not necessarily any different to others in that regard. Yeah, it's true of statistics in general that you can essentially twist them to, to say a variety of different things, hmm. even when the underlying data is the same. And, and politicians are no different 
to anybody else in in that the temptation to do that is there and the statistics you know if everybody else is kind of twisting them slightly to say what what they think they should say or they expect them to say <laughs> then then you know it's it's a temptation that it's easy to give into when we're asked a question and it's it's clear that it's in pursuit of making a particular point well it's leading as i would say as yeah. a yeah <laughs> i mean we'll always present the the facts as as we see them and just present what whatever is in the data but data can be subject to a variety of interpretations so uh, hmm. you know there there often isn't necessarily a right or a wrong way of interpreting it even for us one of the things that i found very refreshing about the book is that it didn't make the case that you have to somehow be an expert or a specialist. It actually went the other way. It said there are ways for the layperson to actually discern quite a lot of what is good data and what is bad data by looking at the assumptions involved. Can you explain that a bit? Yeah, so the book is aimed at people who are not necessarily from a kind of maths or science background who wouldn't necessarily want to engage with a book that that contains a lot of numbers and charts and so on. It doesn't have any charts, doesn't have any tables. It's it's all about stories. And the point that I make is that understanding statistics is all about recognizing the human element in the process. Mm. So I'll give you an example. I don't know if this is even in the book because it's relatively recent, but fuel poverty is measured in a certain way in in the UK, in England at least. And when you hear that that phrase, fuel poverty, you might picture something in particular, but how, how does one actually measure that? And I'll tell you how. The government, they measure it using a combination of how much income people have how high their energy bills are, so how much is left over when they've spent money on their bills. Yeah. And then it's also to do with the, the energy rating of the place that they live in. So according to the definition, if you're in a property that's rated as band C or above, then you can't be fuel poor. That's kind of just like a hard cutoff point. Yeah, and there are so as uh, this is this is an old piece of data now. It's, it's probably very different given the energy price rises. But yeah, yeah. And even in 2020, there were 2.6 million households in the lowest two income deciles who were technically not rated as fuel poor because they were in living in dwellings that had an energy efficiency rating of C or above. Mm. But instinctively, you can. If you understand, so what I've just said there, I've used a few numbers, but I've mostly just talked about the decisions that that were made in as to how to actually measure this quite nebulous concept. You've got to pin it down somehow. The government has chosen to, to pin it down by looking at these specific indicators. And one of them is this kind of hard cutoff point, depending on, on the type of dwelling that you live in. And so if you understand, I think it's easy to understand those kind of decisions as opposed to looking at lots of numbers. But mm. essentially, if you understand that, you, you're really getting to the bottom of what do these statistics actually show? Is that a good way of measuring them? Do we want to continue measuring it in that way? Does that reflect 
the reality of people's experience. Yes, I think the 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 phrase on that that struck me from the book is when you write that things don't count or measure themselves, and one of the most contentious areas is really the big headline to the table, right? You mentioned gender equality, for instance, or social justice, and how you define those. So you could have a graph that's showing, let's say, progress and gender equality, but it actually is meaningless unless you know how how that has been defined. And what interests me is, do we jump to data? So has the pendulum now swung towards a sort of mathematical approach to these things so that we jump to data before we've settled the, I guess, philosophical questions of what it is we're trying to find out and why? I think so. In a lot of cases, I think governments, are they've been very keen to quickly adopt data as a type of fuel for policymaking and also to embrace new kind of technologies like using algorithms, big data, and so on. So that future holds a lot of promise. Governments are really keen, I think, to mm. to be on the bandwagon in time. And, and even if we're talking about less kind of advanced techniques than that, data, it's, it's a big currency these days. Data in its own right is seen as being very valuable. Mm. But yeah, that, that's kind of like, in some cases, maybe putting the cart before the horses, if that's the right phrase for it, because data in its own right is not necessarily insightful, useful, or going to tell you what to do, because you really have to scrutinize very carefully what it is that you've collected, whether it's been collected in the right way, whether there's some form of bias, or there's data gaps that might mean that the conclusions you draw from it are, are not going to be the right ones or accurate. So, yeah, we we do see this, definitely. It feels like polling in particular, and you dedicate quite a chunky um, section to this, has taken a, a, a battering in the last decade or so. That may be right or not. It's it's just my impression from working within politics that a lot of stuff has taken people by surprise from the you know the 2015 election which no one for so would have a, a big conservative majority the the brexit referendum to even the us midterms recently which went a completely different way to what people expected is polling getting worse is it getting more partisan? Are, are there other reasons for the seeming rise in bad predictions? Or maybe there is no such rise. Or maybe people are, you know, now sort of strategically deceitful when they're asked questions. I, I don't know what to make of it. And I, I'm just curious. Yeah, it does seem like that, doesn't it? That polling is getting worse. But pollsters would probably say, well, each of these polls is a kind of independent event, so maybe there's just been a cluster of bad uh, bad calls recently. But I don't know whether there's any reason why polling sh- should be getting worse. I think it, it's probably actually getting better. 
it's just that there's always this temptation for the media and and polling companies themselves to attach more certainty to their predictions than is perhaps warranted not to express the full mm. range of uncertainty so uh, we had this with some of the recent elections and with the referendum as well where polling companies were coming down very decisively in in kind of calling oh it's going to be a remain victory and kind of giving the exact percentages that they thought it would be but when you looked at their the underlying analysis they'd done in there they acknowledged that there was a huge range of uncertainty and that essentially these things are usually too close to call definitively so mm. it might be something to do with the the pressure that they're under and maybe that pressure is more extreme than it was before to kind of come down with with a really decisive headline but there's another phenomenon that might be happening yeah. which is called herding polling companies some of them do their just their own polls but a lot of them will aggregate polls from other other companies as well and what can happen is that there could be some polls which are really off a bit biased or whatever but they keep being dragged into these aggregating models and so they keep kind of reinforcing what appears to be the outcome but it's just because you're just seeing the same kind of bias repeating again and again or appearing mm. in basically every model modeling has also been in the spotlight especially after the pandemic i mean this can be in some ways sort of bad data and steroids because it takes data which may itself be questionable feeds it into a mathematical algorithm that contains several assumptions moving parts often amplifies it is there a, a, an over reliance on forecasting and not enough on risk management because it it strikes me that at times when you're especially trying to save money you're constantly trying to go with sort of central scenarios that that save you money rather than plan for outlier events that may be expensive but you know save lives basically if you plan for them yeah most modeling for public policy purposes is a very inexact kind of science so the models that they produce to even even for the pandemic when you might say virus spread models might be a bit more kind of scientifically robust than other things they weren't really because ultimately they deal with what people are going to do and they have a lot of behavioral assumptions in there so the trouble with these models is that yeah they can be very sophisticated but they will often present us with an enormously wide range of future scenarios to the point where you, you really can't say if things are kind of going to go up or down get better or worse and so governments are kind of forced to just come down somewhere in the middle or apply some other kind of assumptions to to select which scenario they think is most likely at which point you kind of wonder well why do all the modeling in the first place it doesn't really sometimes give you that much more of a steer than if you had just kind of looked at other forms of evidence that are perhaps a bit more a bit more qualitative or a bit more theoretical so it, all these things have their place what about when good data is used in a misleading way i'm thinking as an example you know boris johnson had this perennial claim 
of half a million more jobs and had been corrected just a number of times, both by fact-checking services and even by the statistical authority, that this was 500,000 more people on the payroll, which wasn't the same thing, sort of corrected himself once, then went back to saying the same thing. Is there a way, I, I don't want you to comment on, on specific politicians, I'm just trying to understand whether there is a way to somehow prevent repeat offenders or somehow kite mark good data or put a warning on bad data so that it's fairly comprehensively debunked? Yes, well, I mean, there's a very kind of robust statistical architecture in this country that exists for that exact purpose of trying to to reassure the public kind of or point out to them what data they should trust. So obviously, we've got the Office for National Statistics. We've got statisticians in government departments who were working to code of practice, actually, is what it's called, mm. for how, how statistics should be compiled. And um, then there's things like the Office for Statistics Regulation and the, a whole number of, of different bodies dedicated to kind of policing statistics. And so they do have things like kite marks that they can put on data sets to show that they've been checked for reliability and so on. But as you say, it then doesn't necessarily prevent people from using them to 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 claim something other than what they actually appear to say. So is there a political solution? I mean, should should the speaker be standing up and say, don't, you know, no, that's been fact-checked? Or should there be a parliamentary fact-checking service that actually goes through the debates and sort of makes people correct the record? I, I mean, I don't know if that's, a, if that's an undesirable level of interference. It just seems to me that, you know, once you've said something 10 times during PMQs that then gets picked up on the six o'clock news, the statistical authority sending a letter to say naughty, naughty, it's just not going to make a dent, is it? Yeah, it feels a bit toothless, really, doesn't it, once that statistic is out there in the world. I think in uh, Parliament, I know there have been discussions about this um, just in the wider world, but um, hmm. I don't really think there's much that um, the Speaker or anybody can do other than ask MPs to correct the record and that relies on them voluntarily doing so. But um, yeah, like the classic example of this is the 350 million per week for the NHS that was one of the selling points of the of the Brexit referendum. And that too was kind of debunked and the um, UK Stats Authority issued a letter kind of asking it to be formally retracted, I think, and sort of publicly corrected. But ultimately, the, the cat was out of the bag. And, mm. you know, there was also the, the claim was kind of it was sort of wrong, I suppose, because it didn't take into account the rebate. But it was it wasn't kind of like totally made up or anything. There was definitely yeah, yeah, grain, yeah. like more far more than a grain of truth to it. So at the end of the day, it just felt a little bit like nitpicking. And it didn't. Mm. Yeah. The, the kind of um, criticism by the stats police didn't really cut through in the way that the original soundbite did. 
So it's very hard to to really fact check and correct things once they're out there in the world. Georgina Sturge, thank you so much for your time and for your simplicity of answers and your insight. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you very much for having me, Alex. Bad Data, How Governments, Politicians and the Rest of Us Get Misled by Numbers is out now. Remember, there's a new bunker every day, so don't forget to subscribe, review and rate us. And if you want more brilliant analysis like this, you can support us on the funding platform Patreon from as little as £3 a month. Just search for Bunker Podcast Patreon. You will get every podcast early and with no ads. I leave you with the words of Tim Harford from an FT piece in defence of data. This is the real tragedy. It's not that politicians spin data their way. Of course they do. That's politics. It's that politicians have grown so used to misusing numbers as weapons that they have forgotten that used properly, they are tools. This is Alexandreou in the bunker saying over and out. Bunker Daily was written and presented by Alex Andrei. The producers were Alex Rees and Jeff Gobertson, with assistant production from Kasia Tomashevich. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, and the audio producer was me, Jay Bailey. Group editor is Andrew Harrison, with music from Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>